Welcome to Movies Till Dawn, a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating, always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. I'm Raymond DeFelita, and I'm the show's Toastmaster General. Well, welcome back, both of you. Thank you for being here. Uh, this is this is uh, my occasional podcast, Movies Till Dawn. I say occasional because uh, since 2018, and I, I don't know if you've heard this before, if this is your first time here or not, but since 2018, I've been posting conversations that I've had with other filmmakers, um, and a, a kind of great you know list has developed over the years. I've talked to people like Mel Brooks and Peter Bogdanovich, John Avildsen, Harold Becker, Randall Kleiser, John Sayles, Mary Harron, I, I can go on and on, uh, Griffin Dunn, Nancy Savoka. Anyway, what the point is that, that all of these filmmakers are vets. Um, I really just wanted to talk to people who'd been doing it for a long time. Uh, I, new filmmakers, there's plenty of other podcasts that, that, you know, that, that feature the new filmmakers. I wanted to talk to vets. Because I've been doing it for a while, too. I, I guess you could call me a vet. Um, the thing is, is that I started to run out of people who I, I, I wanted to uh, talk to. Uh, I got some turndowns. Some people wanted to, you know, save it for either other interviews or they would say, oh, I'm writing a book, uh, which is fine. You know, they probably won't write the book, but that's okay. Um, so, but I started to run out of, of, of interview subjects, so I kind of let this podcast drift for about a half a year, uh, and then I thought, you know, you know, there's a lot of wonderful material on on YouTube, um, <clears throat> and it tends to be a little bit obscure, uh, and I spend a lot of time, uh, usually in the morning, on on YouTube mining stuff for my blog, um, which can be found at my website, RaymondDeFelita.org. Uh, then you click the little thing that says blog, and there you are. It's called Movies Till Dawn. My blog is comprised of YouTube uh, material, short clips usually, and a little thing that I write about them, um, having to do largely with either movies, music, or um, urban history and, and film of, of uh, old film of cities, which I, I, I love stuff like that. Uh, and as a result, I'm, I, I, I kind of do a deep YouTube dive every morning. Um, and I find wonderful stuff that isn't necessarily uh, going to fit on a blog because, as I've realized over the years, blogs do best when they use um, short material. When do we go to blogs? Well, when we're screwing around and not working, really. When, when, you know, when you're when you're when you're looking to not work, and instead, you know, whatever we like. Some of us look at real estate. Some of us look at fancy cars. Some of us look at you know whatever. Uh, and blogs are a nice way to fill up a little time, uh, you know, to, to – so, so they're best short is my point. Um, so I, I never post long videos. But uh, I sure find them. They're out there, and I kind of wish I could share them with people. And I thought, well, maybe that's what I should do in relaunching this podcast. Um, I find really interesting old conversations uh, shot with uh, directors of the past, oftentimes from the 1960s and 70s and early 80s. Uh, They tend to be half an hour or more. So they're not going to work for my blog. And I said, let's relaunch this podcast. And instead of me trying to dig up, you know, more subjects, let me share these with you on the podcast. Because as we now know, podcasts, unlike blogs, work best when they have some space to, to develop. 
Um, people listen to podcasts when they're doing other things like driving or exercising or cleaning the house, uh, having sex, whatever. The podcast behind you is, you know, it, it can go on for a, a nice long time and uh, people don't mind that. So I've decided that's what we're going to do in this, this new version of, uh, <clears throat> of, <clears throat> of this podcast. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're better to start with than Orson Welles. Uh, I, I found this marvelous, uh, slightly over half an hour appearance that Wells made on the Michael Parkinson uh, television chat show. Uh, I, I call it that because it's an English show, and that's what they're called in England, chat shows, not talk shows. Uh, Michael Parkinson is a legend in broadcasting, especially in Europe, um, and a wonderful host, more Dick Cavett than Johnny Carson, I would say. He really wasn't comic, but he 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 uh, led a, a wonderful program, and uh, he got the best out of his guests. Uh, and I found this nice appearance by Wells that I thought we could we could start things uh, off with. Um, it's it's Orson in 1973. So for a little context, uh, he's he's already left Europe. Uh, where he'd been living for many years, uh, he went. He, he's gone back to the West Coast of the United States. His uh, family is in Las Vegas. Paolo, uh, the Countess, and uh, his, their daughter Beatrice. Wells also lives in Los Angeles with his companion uh, Oya Kodar, and uh, so he he's restarting his life. Uh, he. I think he's already started shooting The Other Side of the Wind. I don't think he's, or maybe he's just starting to do F for Fake as well, his marvelous essay film about frauds, uh, which eventually was released around 1975. Um, so as always, he's he's moving between different worlds. He's always a bit itinerant, uh, but he's in England for whatever reason. Um, now, if I had Jonathan Rosenbaum's amazing chronological uh, history year by year of Wells's activities, I could tell you exactly what he was doing in England in 1973, but I don't have it in front of me, so, you know, the hell with it. Um, uh, but there he is uh, in England, and he, and he does this appearance on, on, on Parkinson, and he's incredibly charming, um, and it's really a pleasure listening to him on this. Uh, you know, it's interesting, too, because I've noticed that— um, there's a, there's a couple of different phases to Orson the public figure, and for many years in the, in the I would say in the mid-50s through the maybe late 60s, early 70s, you know, he's always fascinating, but his interviews tend to be a little, he's a little depressed. Uh, he's a little melancholy, and he's a little bitter, and complains a little bit much about, he says things like, well, I never got the same contract at RKO that I did he, you know, he he he's still kind of wearing the 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 heavy cape, the burden that he carried with him. Something something happens to him though when he uh, goes back to to California. I don't know that that's the reason. Maybe it's things in his personal life. But the Wells that you hear in this interview and that is essentially the Wells that we know until his death in 1985. He's lighter of spirit, and there's a, a sparkle in his eye, and perhaps um, what he's ever, he's about 58 years old here. He's perhaps uh, had a little wisdom come to him, and he's not so depressed. And I'm not saying that he had a, an easy time of it, but he's also having a good time uh, being Orson and talking about his life and his plans and his opinions. 
so that's what you're going to hear. Um, in the coming months, I'm going to post every month now, we're going to hear a, one, a lot of wonderful interviews that, that are buried deep in YouTube. Um, now, I know you might say, well, if they're on YouTube, what's the big deal? Why am, why am I the one to put them out there? What am I really doing? Uh, 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 you know, what's my uh, end of this? The answer is, well, you know, you're probably not going to find it. Um, consider me the curator of this. There's just too much stuff out there. So I'm going to curate some stuff every month, and uh, we'll, he'll, we're going to hear some, some fun stuff, and we're going to start with Orson. I don't think politicians are natural crooks. Not all of them. No, I don't think most of them are. I think they are actors. And actors are neither men nor women. Actors belong to a third sex. Actors are actors. And one aspect of it is the political game. But that kind of acting is not lying. As long as it refers to and reflects and exalts the essential commonly held ideals of a culture. Those performances are part of our culture, even though they are performances, even though some of the actors themselves may be cynical about their performance. But what we have now cannot be excused in those terms. Mm. But you said only the last time that you wouldn't mind the job of president of the United States. Do I take it that you're still uh, in candidacy? Well, uh, they, haven't, they haven't been burning up the wires. No. Uh, uh, <laughs> I really not, uh, I, I'm not uh, really in a position at this point of time uh, to state that uh, I am ready for candidacy of the president. <laughs> well, one thing that... that uh, uh, I amused me about that really was I was looking on television the other night and you had the vice president designate whose name I can't remember now. Ford. Ford, that's yes, Gerald Ford. should be easy. Gerald Ford, yeah. that's right, yes. And, uh, he Gerald is the tough part of it. That's right, yeah. <laughs> we uh, call him Jerry. Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> and he was, he was some before some of that kind of uh, preliminary Senate investigatory committee. And he was saying the most extraordinary things about you can investigate me, you can investigate my children, you can talk to my bank manager, you know, you can look into me and there's nothing wrong with me. I'd, I'd love to be there, actually, if you ever got to the position of presidency of the United States where they were investigating you. I mean... You mean me, me? You, you. Yeah. I mean, but I've been investigated over and over again by the, by the, by the Americans, by, the, by all kinds of American committees and really? FBI and everybody, sure. Sure, it's it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's it's one of our favorite indoor and outdoor sports. <laughs> uh, what else were we doing in uh, the uh, doctor's office uh, uh, during Ellsberg's trial? But investigated. Yes. You know. Yes. My trouble during the investigation period, what I was being investigated a lot, was during the time of the anti-American oh, McCarthy yeah. period. Yeah. You see, and I never got to testify because I kept begging to be allowed to. And this was, this was a line of argument that nobody else took. And it absolutely stopped them. I said, oh, please let me go and explain why I'm not a communist. Uh, well, we'll let you know, you know. Then one of them earlier in the day, there was, a, there, was a, there was one congressional committee which was run by a fellow called Dyes, 
who ended up in jail for one of those minor crimes that seem to tempt our people in elective office. Uh, <laughs> and he was a strong patriot. He wrapped himself in the American flag as fully as it was possible to do. And he had an un-American, or whatever it was called, uh, affairs committee long before McCarthy started. And he sent a few louts over to see me in my office in Hollywood. And they were particularly uneducated and dumb, and they fell into a marvelous trap because they said to me, Do you, are you a card-carrying communist? Of course, I've never been even faintly pro-communist, but uh, uh, I, I am a, on the progressive side, as, as uh, I, I imagine you've guessed. But uh, uh, I said, will you define what a communist is? And this is when they fell in the trap. You see. I said, they said, what do you mean? I said, well, just, uh, I, I want to answer your question honestly. How can I answer your question if you don't tell me what you mean? Well, that's, what's communist? Well, I guess it's where whatever you make you, you goes to the government. I said, well, I'm 86% communist. <laughs> <laughs> the rest is capitalist. <laughs> that's the income tax that one pays the man. <laughs> Did you, uh, have you ever been bugged? Oh, yes, but that was by Harry Cohen. That was oh. by a, the head of a movie studio in my office. And he had me bugged in such an obvious way that I used to come in. I had a radio program every week in those days. And I used to come into my uh, office in the morning. I'd say, good morning, everyone. This is Orson Welles' office, welping, wel welcoming you to another day of fun and laughter and so on. And then when the day would end, I'd say, is Orson Welles signing off? We'd play a little music and so on. And <laughs> treated it like a radio show. And... Uh, Harry Cohen got rather angry about that because he thought he, the buggy ought to take it seriously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> buggy. Yes. When I was in, the, when I ran the f federal theaters in the days of the WPA, we were all bugged, of course, and our, our phones were in those days. It was even, it's hard to imagine anything more primitive than Watergate or the, the disappearing tapes that we're faced with today, but, uh, but uh, it was so primitive then that you could hear buzzing and and screeching on the phone when they were listening. And as a result of one of those operations, I put on uh, Christopher Marler's Dr. Faustus, and a congressman got up on the floor and said, it is a known fact that Orson Welles is producing and acting in a play by the notorious communist Christopher Marlowe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that was, but that took a lot of electronic work to get that information. Yeah. The reason that you've, you've worked uh, uh, and lived for s such a long time in Europe... Not to avoid McCarthy. No, it's, no. <laughs> no. it's been because the, the, the work's been there. Yes, this sort of really. Mm. Yes, yeah. really, because the work's been uh, in, in, in Europe. Mm. And because uh, <clears throat> I like living on this side of the Atlantic very much, but I like living in America too. Mm. I'm not a, a refugee, uh, either politically or emotionally from my country. Yeah. And I, I, uh, I'm... I'm uh, I'm uh, neither very uh, uh, hot about nationalistically inclined, because I hate that in anybody. I hate, I do truly believe that patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel. Yes. And uh, I don't feel that way, but uh, uh, I'm very happy in America. But it happens that America is not as happy with me as I am with it. <laughs> you know? yeah. Why do you, in fact, live in Spain at present? 
I don't live in Spain. I'm shooting a picture there. Oh, I see. Yeah, but but you spend a lot of time there, don't you? Not as much now as I did before. I, I was there, again, because, like the fruit pickers, I go where the work is, <laughs> you know? Uh, but, uh, no, I don't live in Spain at all. I don't have an establishment there. No. But, I, I mean, mean yes, I like Spain because I'm old-fashioned, and it's an old-fashioned country. But I hadn't been in Spain when I talked to you for a long time. Mm. And I've been That's there true. now. And in the last six months, it's joined the glory of the present world to such an extent that you don't know whether you're in Los Angeles or not in half the streets of Madrid. Really? And a great deal of the grace and pleasure of life, at least in the big cities, is gone. Yes. Are you, in fact, uh, also still interested? I know it was a, a passion of yours in, uh, in previous uh, years in bullfighting. Yes, but I've less... Uh, uh, I'm interested in what I remember. You don't? I don't, I don't like it much anymore. Why is that? Well, two things. First of all, bullfighting, as somebody once said very well, is um, indefensible and irresistible. Mm. And uh, it is irresistible when everything is as it ought to be, both with the beast, the sacrificial beast, and with the brave uh, man who meets that brave animal for uh, uh, a ritualistic encounter. I'm not going to go into all that mystique, which has been pretty worn out mm. by now. Mm. Uh, uh, the fact is that it has become an industry which depends on its existence, uh, the tourist trade. So it's become folkloric. And I hate anything which is folkloric, you know. But I haven't turned against bullfighting because uh, it's, uh, it needs a lot of Japanese in the front row to keep going, and it does. Uh, but uh, I've turned against it for very much the same reason that my father, who was a great hunter, suddenly stopped hunting. He said, I've killed enough animals, and I'm ashamed of myself. Mm. And uh, I was a bad tororito, you know, for a while myself, and I've seen too many hundreds of bullfights, thousands of them, I suppose and wasted a lot of my life now that I look back on it, and although it's been a great education to me in human terms and in many other ways, uh, I begin to think that I've seen enough of those animals die. Was it a waste? It's all you should say that when you look back. I would have thought it was a very exciting... It was all of that, but uh, wasn't I living second-hand through the lives of those toreros who were my friends? Yes. Wasn't I living and dying secondhand? Wasn't there something finally voyeuristic about it? I suspect my aficion. I still go to bullfights. I'm not totally reformed, and I, I can't uh, ask for the I can't ask for the approval of the people who have uh, very good reasons to uh, argue about stopping it. And by the way, almost all Spanish intellectuals have been against bullfighting for the last 150 years. Mm. It's, uh, there are very few, Lorca is one of the few Spanish intellectuals who ever uh, approved of bullfighting. Mm. Uh, uh, no, waste, 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 you ask me. Uh, waste because I wasn't doing anything. Yes. My little short period of doing it was just for the fun of it. As a kid, uh, I didn't think I was going to grow up to be the, the, uh, the Belmonte of my generation, and uh, the rest of my life that I spent among bull breeders and bullfighters was enormous fun. But um, what have I extracted from it that's of any value to anybody? What were the qualities in them, though, that, that, that you admire, that attract you to them? 
Well, of course, my, I'm, I'm uh, you know, there are two kinds of, of uh, people who, who follow the bulls, as, as they say in Spanish. There are those people who follow because they love the bullfighters, and there is a very small minority who are interested in the bulls. And I was always most interested in the bulls. Now, that will be incomprehensible to an English audience that somebody could be fundamentally interested in, in the animal who is going to be killed. But my interest in bulls was like the interest of somebody uh, who is very keen and very knowledgeable about horses. I know a great deal about bulls mm. and am much more interested in them than in the men who fight them, in spite of the fact that some of the dearest friends I have in my life have been bullfighters. It was something, of course, you, you shared this passion with millions of other people, but one other very famous American, Hemingway. Yeah. Did you ever meet him? He was a very close friend of mine. Was he? Yeah. Uh, I knew him on and off for many years. We had a very strange relationship. He was, uh, I never belonged to his clan because I made fun of him. And nobody ever made fun of Hemingway. Mm. But I did. And he took it, but he didn't like me to do it in front of the, the club. We met in the projection of a movie which he had made and which he wanted me to narrate. And, uh, he had written the commentary. This is many years ago. Yeah. And uh, we hadn't seen each other. This is a dark projection room. And I was reading the text. And I said, is it really necessary to say this? Do you think wouldn't it be better to just see the picture? And things like that. And then I heard this growl from the darkness, you know? Some damn faggot who runs an art theater trying to tell me how to write narration and so on. So I began to camp it up. I thought, if that's what I'm dealing with, I said, oh, Mr. Hemingway, you think because you're so big and strong and have hair on your chest that you've got a bullet in you, see? So this great figure stood up and swung at me. So I swung at him. Now you have the picture of the Spanish Civil War being projected on a screen and these two heavy figures swinging away at each other and missing most of the time. <laughs> the lights came up and we looked at each other and burst into laughter and became great friends. Not a friendship that was renewed every year, but over many years at different times. Yes. And I saw him in the last year in which he was still entirely in control of himself, again, quite, quite a lot. But we never discussed bullfighting because we, uh, except on the subject of Ordonez, we disagreed profoundly on too many points. And he thought he invented it, you know. Yes. He really did think he yes. invented it. Yes. He, of course, maybe he did. His, his book, of course, is still it's superb. A magnificent. And it's a superb book. He's a, yeah. he's a great, great, great artist. I, I, mm. I, 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 my, my admiration for... I was enormously fond of him as a man, too, because the thing you never get from his books was his humor. Yes. There's hardly a word of humor in a Hemingway book because he's so tense and solemn and dedicated to what is true and good and all that. Mm. But when he relaxed, he was riotously funny. Mm. And that was the level that I loved about him. And I, uh, I, I, I enjoyed being with him. I used to go out and keep him company when he went duck shooting in Venice in the, uh, in the, in the autumns. I have many strange memories of him like that. Yeah. And I was enormously fond of him. But as an artist, I think that there, it's really... <clears throat> there are very few important writers, with the exception of Novikov, who uh, are have not been influenced to some degree by him. I think it's impossible to write the same.
and yet, as we did before he wrote. And yet, do you not sense now that he's become, over the past ten years, an old-fashioned sort of figure? He's come back again, I think. Yeah. My hunch is, I don't know in England, of course, because these things <coughs> vary in different countries. In America, he was uh, in total eclipse for the last ten years, but he's, uh, the sun is rising again, mm. uh, critically for him, a little bit. Mm. Yeah. He's been dead long enough. I, I think it's mainly true, isn't it, that, that uh, writers do go into uh, total eclipse right after their death. Yes. I wonder why that is, but it seems to be true. He was ultimately, of course, a tragic figure, wasn't he? I mean, in that his end was com complete counterpoint to all that he'd stood for and written about. He was sick, he was sick. But he did talk about suicide, you know. His father uh, killed himself with a gun in the same way. Yes. And he talked to me about it several times. Really? In a sort of obsessive way. Yes. Uh, but he was, uh, he was a sick man. He wasn't merely a... He was, uh, he was not well mentally, you know. Yes. He's not to be judged as himself. In other words, he didn't, the Hemingway we are talking about did not choose his death. Yes. He might have, but he wasn't that man. Yeah. Do you have any heroes? Oh, yes. Who you do? Many. Really? Yes, many. Who are they? I suppose the great, well, I, they, there are the, you know, uh, in England, uh, the Churchill is, uh, you know, I'm, I know he's a little out of fashion with a lot of young people, <laughs> you know, who send him up a lot, and I, I'm an uh, abject hero, worshipper of, uh, of Winston's. And uh, I think the greatest man I ever met was George Marshall. Really? Everything that greatest I would human being. like to be myself or like everybody to be. He was just... Yeah. One night, we were, we were at a big dinner, a banquet. All the brass, this is, the war was still on. I was the only civilian who was going to sit in the, uh, on the dais, as we call it, in America. And there was the admirals and everybody else, and uh, Mr. Roosevelt was going to be wheeled in in a moment, and uh, we were waiting, and uh, it was in the Mayflower Hotel, and the door opened, and uh, a GI looked in, just by accident, he opened the door, and he saw George Marshall, who was the highest-ranking officer in the world. He said, you're General Marshall. Now, Marshall didn't know anybody was watching this. I was, because everybody was having drinks and talking. I just happened to be watching. He said, yeah, come in, son. And he went off in the corner with the boy, who was an ordinary GI, and sat talking with him for 15 minutes, and sent the boy home. Now, there are not many generals of the army who could do that with simplicity mm. and without the slightest hint of uh, demagoguery or yes. playing. He didn't think one of us was admiring him for being a human being. Mm. And he was such a human being that that little boy from the prairies of uh, Kansas or wherever instantly saw that he could talk to him yes. without embarrassing yes. Yes. As he could never have talked to his major. Yes. Or to General MacArthur. <laughs> you or know? to Patton, though. Oh, well, certainly not to Patton. Not, <laughs> not unless he had his guard up. <laughs> <laughs> I asked you that question about heroes, actually, because I know to a, 
to a lot of people that, that you know, if I asked them that question, they would say that you were their hero. I can't imagine why, but I love hearing it. You love hearing it. I sincerely <laughs> don't know why. I sincerely can't see how anybody could make a hero of me. I, but, uh, as I've never yet been called it, I must ask you this, and you've been called it many times, you've been called a genius many times. Yes, yeah, so it's just one of those words, you know. It's one of those words. I suppose there have only been two or three geniuses in a century. We all know who they are, you know. Really? I suppose, yes. What, Einstein and Picasso and somebody in China we haven't heard about, you know. <laughs> so you, do, you, you don't accept the... Uh, oh, I the accept word. anything I get. <laughs> but, but between friends, you know, there aren't many of them. No. And I, I really wouldn't... I really wouldn't want to try to edge my way into uh, an elevator that uh, for geniuses only <laughs> going up, you know. <laughs> well, let's go. You were talking earlier about, about experts and that idea. I suppose you take you experts, I would be, uh, uh, film critics would be, would call themselves experts, one imagine. Now, they've judged a film of yours twice running the best film ever made. Now, how do you... That shows you how crazy experts are. <laughs> no, I think uh, it shows you how fundamentally sound film criticism is in this, <laughs> in this day and age. <laughs> no, I don't... I, I never talk about critics because uh, there isn't anything to be said about them. If they, if they criticize you, anything you say is sour grapes. And if they like what you do, you should shut up. You know, it's... it's, uh, it's uh, there's no way of criticizing the critics. Do they, ever immune. Do they ever wound you? Deeply, yes. Any, I can remember every bad notice I've ever had. Really? I can remember one I got when I was 18 years old in, in Salt Lake City when I played Marsh Banks with Catherine Cornell and I was described as a sea calf whining in a basso profundo. <laughs> and I'm sure it's an absolutely accurate description of that performance which must have been abominable but it still goes through my head before I go to sleep at night along with a thousand other litanies of the same kind I have a <coughs> misfortune is that I, uh, I, I it isn't out of modesty it's I suppose some form of of masochism if so it's the only thing that I'm masochistic about but I do remember all the bad notices and I do forget or or uh, take not very seriously the good ones. Yes. And the other curious thing is that you genuinely do not like talking about your work in movies at all. No, about because film. it's oh. done. I really don't. You yes. know that. That isn't because we've got cameras on no. us. I, I really, no, no. I, I'm a I I, My family has never heard me say a word about any picture I've ever made. I just found you that know. very, very curious yeah. indeed. Because, you know, the number of people I have interviewed, film directors, film actors particularly, I mean, that's all they can talk about. Well, I'm sure they can talk about things, but they like to talk about it. A lot of directors and actors like to run their movies, you know. Their idea of a happy night at home is to turn on the projector and see one of their pictures again, you know. And I can't think of anything more horrifying, you know, because you can't change it. Yes. What can you do about it? Yes. There it is, yes. forever. And if you're, you know, if you're a writer and you've written a bad chapter, and they're going to bring out another edition. If you're lucky enough of your works, you get to fix up that chapter. Nothing you can do about a movie. There it is, locked in forever. Yes. You know? Yes. But of course, you, 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 you will talk generally about, about movies, not your own, yes. about the industry. Yes, I'm not as interesting about it as I'd like to be, though, because I don't see enough movies. No, no. no. But I was, I was just wondering about the, the changes that you've seen in the, in the industry since you first started making movies in, in Hollywood. The most radical do you think change. it's still an industry, Michael? Uh, really no. an industry. 
It's not an industry like it used to be, that's no. for sure. And I wonder if it really was. I think it was a kind of, I think it always was show business, and that when there were big studios, which still existed when I went to Hollywood, and were, but were in their very last days, as golden age big studios, I think they were pretending to be factories, and it was still show business. It's true they were grinding them out and all that, but it's show business. The true industrial process cannot be as, uh, as helter-skelter and idiotic as every form of show business is. Otherwise, you know, every car we'd get in would break down after the second block. I can't believe the rest of the people are as stupid as we are. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but then, but, but how do you get the product then if it's all as mad as that? I mean, what uh, well, those it days? It sort of happens. It sort of happens, you know. Movies are terribly easy to make. It's much harder to put on a play eh? than a movie. Oh, yes. Eh? You see, because the minute... Uh, what's hard to do is to make a very good movie. Yes. A good movie is even easy to make because if you have a good cameraman, if you have the, the cast that happens to be right, if you have a story that happens to be vaguely interesting... That is the art form that works in our day and age. So that uh, it would be very hard to write a great play in blank verse today, but I think it was pretty easy in Elizabethan days to write a good Elizabethan, uh, to write a good verse play. Yes. Not a great one, but a good one. Damn near impossible now, because it has nothing to do with our culture. Yes. But somehow, a good movie gets itself made even by a lot of second-rate people. Yes. You know? Yes. A very good one is, of course, another, another thing. Yeah. And if you look back at those days in Hollywood when you were first operating over there, and it really was the dream factory, yeah, wasn't yeah. it? Miss? You, when you look back, I mean, are you nostalgic about those days, or are they just, uh, were they just comic relief? I loved them. Did you? You know. I thought it was great. You really? Know? <laughs> I never belonged to it. You see, when I came, I was this terrible maverick that they all, you know, I was, uh, I represented, I was sort of the, you know, Forty, thirty years ahead of my time, whatever it is, there was a sort of ghost of a Christmas future. There was the one beatnik, you know, there was this guy with a beard who was going to do it all by himself, you know. I represented the terrible future of uh, what was going to happen to that town. So uh, I was hated and despised. I had all kinds of friends among the real dinosaurs who were awfully nice to me. Really? Uh, yes, and I had a very good time. But... I believe that I have looked back too optimistically on Hollywood because my daughter has a, has a group of books about Hollywood that she bought. I don't know why, probably vainly looking for references of her father in them. <laughs> and uh, I took to reading them lately and I realized how many great people that town has destroyed since its earliest beginnings. How almost everybody of merit was destroyed or diminished and how the few people who were good who survived, how, what a great minority they were. And I suddenly thought to myself, why do I look so affectionately on that town? It was because it was funny and it was gay and it was an old-fashioned circus and uh, everything that we're nostalgic about made it funny and gay when it was really happening. Yes. But really it was a brutal place. Yes. And when I take my own life out of it and see what they did to other people, I see that the story of that town is a dirty one, and its record is bad. Yes. 
And what about what about the 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 stars, the the great stars they had in those days? That I mean, people always say we don't have nowadays. Well, well we we don't. That's no. true because they they they're not processed in the way that they used to. I don't think that they you know, they don't exist. They don't exist. They don't exist. Well, why is that? Why because they be? exist. They're singers. In the old days, the greatest thing in the world to be was a movie star. Yes. Today, the greatest thing in the world is to be a pop singer. There will never be a great star unless the greatest thing in the world to be is that kind of star. I see. I see. At the end of the last century and before the First World War, the greatest thing in the world Yes. And people used to faint in the streets when they saw an opera singer. And then there came the movie stars. I think... You see, I think we are, any, any form of entertainment only exists because it corresponds to a moment in time, you know? So that, of course, there are actors who are as good or as remarkable or yes. as, as space-displacing or whatever, yes. uh, however you want to describe a star. Yes. But the world doesn't think being a movie star is the everlasting end. No. And it no. used to, and that's, that's why they right. don't exist. That's right. I was going to ask you, in effect, which brought us right back to the beginning of our conversation. Were they, in fact, great, just great stars, or were they just part of an illusion? They were great. <laughs> they were great. I think that, uh, I think that uh, Keaton and Garbo, uh, my goodness, Cagney. I won't talk about Bogart because everybody does. I loved him very much, but I, I think we can get along without talking about Bogart for about three years, and his, his shade will be relieved. Yes. But Cagney, in my view, was maybe the greatest actor who ever appeared in front of the camera. Really? Yes. James Cagney? Yes. Why, why was that? What was this? What makes you First of all, he broke every rule about movie acting. He came, you see, the first thing that every stage actor says is, I learned to act with the camera because you have to do less. You can't, you know, you can't do laddie. What should you do at the National Theater? You have to act for the camera and so on. Cagney came on as though we were playing to an audience of 4,500 people. He acted at the top of his bent, and he never hammed for one moment, thus proving my point that hamming is not overacting. It is false acting. It's fakery. Mm. And there's not a fake minute in a Cagney movie. Please have a season of him. Yeah. And study what, yes. what he was. In fact, I was thinking the other day about the people I haven't interviewed who I'd love to. And I think he comes somewhere. He won't come. I know. He's he won't come. He won't. Complete recluse now, isn't yes. he? Yes. Well, no, but he won't come in front of a camera. No. He, he goes out and does his, uh, his uh, thing, and he goes to Hollywood for six months every year. And sees his old cronies and so on. But in all his life, you know, he was like Tracy and a lot of people. He never went to a nightclub once, never went out. You know, he was a totally uh, invisible. You know, Garbo wasn't the only one. Yeah. There was just a small group who went to Macambo and, uh, and slugged the, the photographers and did all that scene, you know. <laughs> <That was a> <laughs> <laughs> the rest of them were homebodies, you know. When you talk, uh, it depends what they got yeah. at home, of course. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> when you, because when you talked to me last time, you said something about, uh, I think your friend Akim Tamirov said about acting, either the camera loves you oh, or yes, the camera doesn't. I presume that was true, of, more true about Garbo than anybody else, wasn't it? Yes, I, I suppose that anybody. Mm. And of course, it's a great mystery. I don't know if you've ever seen those commercials she did. No. When I went to Stockholm years ago, they showed me in their, in their film institute there two commercials for bread that she made. 
to be shown in movie theaters. And uh, there was this great galumphing Swedish cow <laughs> having a picnic. There was nothing to show you that you were looking at the most divine creature would ever be on the screen. And two years later, she was Greta Garbo. Now, I have no explanation whatsoever. Surgery. <laughs> no, no, just... You know, I have no idea what, 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 what uh, there is about the camera, what that, what that box does, yes. what made Cooper so thrilling on the screen and convincing. And when you'd visit uh, Gary Cooper on the set and you'd see him do a take, as I did a couple of times to go out to lunch with him, I'd stand watching it. They'd finish the take and the director say, okay, that's a, that's a print. I'd say, they can't use that. I'd say to myself, that's nothing. <laughs> then you'd see the rushes, magic. Mm. You know, showing that it isn't, there isn't any rule at all that explains it. Mm. Can I ask you, uh, finally, Austin, as we get toward the end, how many films you're working on at present? Because you seem to be juggling with about four or five whenever I meet you. Yes, I am always, because uh, uh, the hope is that one of them, <laughs> one of them will work out. Uh, uh, we're, we're finishing a picture now, uh, or will be. I'll be going... Uh, and the final photography with it very shortly, which is called The Other Side of the Wind, which is about the, the uh, a lot of which has been filmed, mm. most of which. And it's about the, the uh, last day in the life of an old movie director. Oh, yes. An older movie director than I am. Okay. Everybody will think it's autobiographical, but it's not. I, 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 I saw a bit about this. It was described as your first erotic movie. Yes, you know, well, I don't know what somebody, you know... I think, I think I, I know how that happened. There was a press conference in behalf of some uh, project of mine, and uh, it was clear that there wasn't any copy being given to a group of, of hard-working journalists. And uh, having been a journalist myself, I thought I'd invent something. Oh, I see. It's, it's a sheer fakery. <laughs> sheer fakery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if he knows. Yeah. <laughs> But why, in fact, do you have such a schedule? Why do you keep working so hard? It's an awful compulsion, it seems to me, in you to work all the time. Oh, no. No? Oh, no, I'm... S you know, it's... I, I think uh, uh, what you're... You've put your finger on a basic failing of all lazy people. They have to work too hard or they won't do anything at all. Yes. You know? Yes. Once I, once I stretch out in a hammock, you'll never hear from me again. <laughs> you know, as I like it that way. Could I, could I take you as that, that is your last line tonight, or, or, or is there, could I ask you, is there any one single line at all in any play you've ever done, any movie, anything you've ever read, that you really sort of believed and thought that's, that's true, that's good, that's really what I'm about? What I'm about, uh, I don't know. Uh, Plato told us that we should know ourselves, and uh, the object of every artist, good, bad, or indifferent, is uh, a lifelong inquiry into that subject and his work is testimony to that effort that I'm in no position to sum myself up and uh, I would be appalled if the truth could be offered to me at this moment. You carry on inquiring? Yes. Orson Wells, thank you very much <laughs> indeed. <laughs> thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Movies Till Dawn podcast. There's also a Movies Till Dawn blog where, on a mostly daily basis, I post YouTube videos related to movies, music, urban history, and all kinds of junky cultural artifacts that interest me. If you'd like to experience the Movies Till Dawn blog, go to my website, RaymondDeFelita.org, click on the little tab at the top that says blog, and everything will fall into place. You can even subscribe and you'll get the posts daily via email, which is a much less annoying way to deal with it. So please come back for more conversations with veteran filmmakers and explore our podcast site, MoviesTillDawnPodcast.com, to listen to other conversations with filmmaking legends that I've been collecting and posting over the past few years. 